Greetings, and welcome to Catastrophe Cast. My name is Walter, and today's topic that we're going to discuss is actually described in some of the research as the loneliest air crash. It is inspired by a friend's experience. I have a friend working in a remote part of the world. He's living there, and the last flight took off in February, and they won't have another flight landing there until October. If you haven't guessed yet, the place I'm talking about is Antarctica. And the catastrophe that I'm talking about is the crash of Air New Zealand Flight 901, which flew into Mount Erebus on Antarctica on November 29th, 1979. Now, to begin the podcast and this subject in particular, you have to think about the dawn of the jet age. So back before the jet age, of course, everything was, you know, airplanes were flown by props and prop airplanes could only go so fast and they could only go so far. So as soon as we actually had jet engines on airplanes, that allowed planes to go much faster and much greater distances, as well as taking a greater number of people. More background on Antarctica itself, of course, when you think about it, it's it's mostly unspoiled. It's one of the few places on Earth that's so remote, and it's just so barely, barely populated. The public's fascination began, of course, you know, early on, but the scientific fascination with Antarctica began in the 1950s. And Air New Zealand and Qantas both really wanted to capitalize on this idea of the public's fascination. So they proposed sightseeing flights to be able to go from either New Zealand or Australia to Antarctica and then back. Air New Zealand had some shiny new DC-10s and... Of course, you know, you think about 19, the 1970s and DC-10s, you know, they were, um, they were the next big thing in the airline industry, and they didn't have that great of a reputation, of course. If you think back to the podcast number two, which is the first investigation that I actually really delved into, that was American Airlines Flight 191 in Chicago in the summer of 1979, so just a few months before this Air New Zealand Flight 901. So that was, you know, a troubling incident, of course. And actually years before the American Airlines crash, there was the Turkish Air Flight 981 that crashed due to a cargo door issue. So the DC-10 didn't have the best reputation, but, you know, it could carry a great number of people a great long distance. Flight 901 operated just a handful of times over the course of a couple of years. It took off on November 29th, 1979. That was the fourth flight of the year. And it took off a little uh, after 7 a.m. local time in New Zealand. Took off from Auckland, and the route, of course, was to go from Auckland to do an Antarctic excursion from the air, and then turn around, go back to Christchurch. They would land around 7 p.m. that day to allow themselves to refuel, and then they'd go back 
to Auckland. So you would start out at about 8 a.m. and you would end at 9 p.m. So it was an 11-hour day. That was, you know, it was pretty long for a sightseeing tour. Flight 901 took off with 237 passengers and 20 crews, so 250 people total. When you think about this, the cost back then was almost $400, which, of course, was a lot of money. If When you think about it, this was 1979. But, and this is, of course, uh, my friend Ethan has just recently told me this, there are excursions to the continent of Antarctica to this day. And actually, he said that it can cost anywhere from $24,000 to $40,000 U.S. to actually visit the actual continent. So go and get onto the step on the ground of the continent. So it, you know, so this was even $400 back then, back in the late 70s. This seems to be a bargain. Like any other flight, there, of course, was a flight crew, and the flight crew was briefed. These Antarctic flights, of course, were special. So there was a special briefing for the flight crew, which neither the pilot nor the co-pilot had actually ever done this flight before. But they went through the the special briefing two weeks beforehand, and they were told about the flight, they were given the f- copy of the flight plan, and they were told, of course, what was what to be expected it was a standard tour so they were all ready to go so the flight took off like normal uh, and after a few hours they made them the flight made its way to Antarctica since it was a sightseeing flight there were of course a multitude of people all taking you know hundreds and hundreds of pictures so the flight was to go in to Antarctica over McMurdo Sound and then do a circle, turn back, perform a really long oval, and then continue on a little bit a ways over the continent before turning back and going back to, uh, to New Zealand. When you consider the conditions of the flight, okay, so you're going to be flying over the seas, which, okay, that can be really disorienting at night because you've got darkness under you and you got darkness above you but of course this was during the day so they had darkness below them of the sea and then they had the the bright sky and clouds above them so that was good but once you actually got to antarctica and you were flying over either land or the or the actual ice shelves it was white on white on white so it was very disorienting it was basically whiteout conditions so you couldn't really tell where the earth ended and the clouds began. The flight came in, they did their normal circle, they turned back and did the long stretching oval to give people the really good views of the of, of Antarctica. And then they started turning back. Now flights, since this is a sightseeing flight, they had been cleared down to 16,000 feet and then once they had gotten closer, down to 10,000 feet. And it was standard practice. McMurdo actually cleared them uh, to go even lower, and they were cleared to 2,000 feet. Now, you're thinking, this is a DC-10. This is going at several hundred miles an hour, and 
it's only 2,000 feet above the surface of the earth. That's, that seems pretty incredible. It's, it's something you would have only when you're doing takeoff or landing. But of course, this was sightseeing, so it was kind of the norm. The views must have been just really, really spectacular, especially since they were so low. Now, getting a little bit ahead of myself, I actually read the cockpit voice recorder transcript, and the the really, I don't know how you would describe it, uh, uh, weird, awesome, scary. It's barely... It's, there's not really a word for it, but there's no inclination of the oncoming crash. It was a very, very last minute thing. The first inkling of something was going wrong was about six seconds before the plane impacted into the mountain. There is a sudden uh, whoop whoop sound, and if you've ever been on a plane, uh, and been up close, close to the po- cockpit before you, you know, take off. You'll hear the pilots going through all of the, you know, pre-test, pre-flight tests, and you'll usually hear the whoop whoop pull up sound that the the computer will actually tell you in case you are close to the ground. So you know, so you've probably heard this if you've been on a plane and been up close to the cockpit. So the pilots knew they were low. But they actually had no idea that the flight path that they were on was taking them right directly into the path of Mount Erebus. They thought they were flying over McMurdo Sound, but McMurdo Sound ended up being miles and miles away. So at 12.50 p.m. New Zealand time, the plane, which had been flying so low and giving everyone such a spectacular view, six seconds before impact came the first inclination of something was wrong, and then they crashed into Mount Erebus, and it killed 257 passengers and crew instantly. Now, McMurdo Station, of course, tried to reach the plane repeatedly, but they just got dead air. They then contacted Air New Zealand headquarters up in Auckland, and they let them know that communications were lost. The conditions at the time were not that good, and it took hours just to confirm that the airplane had actually crashed. And when they finally found it, they found the wreckage, the impact of the plane, at 1,500 feet in the side of the mountain. The crash was described as a brown stain carved into the snow. It took several days to get the people there to start the investigation and to pull bodies out. The first bodies started arriving in New Zealand over a week later, and in all, only 213 of the 257 people from the sightseeing crash were actually ever identified. So what happened? What caused this crash of just a leisurely day visiting Antarctica? Well, there was an initial inquiry, and it was called the Chippendale Report. And that report put blame strictly on the pilots. It said that the plane was extremely low, and 
that the pilot should have never been that low. Air New Zealand, of course, jumped on this and was like, yes, of course, they should have never been that low. It's the crew's fault. Um, the pilots were told, you know, they that you know they should be at six thousand feet for the entire thing. But the thing is, Air New Zealand actually their own travel magazine, which touted these flights, actually showed the flight operating below six thousand feet, and they even touted that in their own magazine. So when the Chippendale report came out, they it, people were skeptical. Of course, you know they they had they didn't believe it. One of the Air New Zealand pilots was so skeptical that he did not take the explanation at all. His name was Captain Alwyn Vett, and he did not accept that the crew was so incompetent that they would just fly the, the plane and all its passengers into a mountain. So he put forth three hypotheses, that the destination waypoint was shifted more than 25 miles off without notifying the crew, that the flight crew followed the flight plan as they should have because they, they thought they were supposed to, and the crew of Air New Zealand Flight 901 expected to see Murmurdo Sound. Uh, it was a flat white plateau in a sea of ice, you know, going on into the distance. And, you know, he basically said, these were the three things that happened that caused this crash. And, of course, they, the crew in the cockpit voice recorder, they, they spotted different things off of the plane. And not being familiar with the area, they actually, you know, just assumed, oh, that's Ross Island. Oh, that's Memurdo Sound. But when they were thinking they were looking at Memurdo Sound, they were actually in something called Lewis Bay. And that is where the Mount Erebus is. It's in Lewis Bay. The whiteout conditions basically hid the information from them, and that's what led them to fly into the mountain. So, you know, Captain Vett did not accept that it was their responsibility, the, the crew's responsibility. He knew that there was something wrong, and he actually went through to prove that these points, that it wasn't the crew, that it was the situation and other extenuating circumstances. So, of course, right after the Chippendale report was was filed, there was another inquiry that was called into, and it was called the Mahan, M-A-H-O-N, so Mahan or Mahan inquiry. And the good thing about that is, well, it, it took a while, but the chief inspector that that did this he actually it's it's documented that he actually went to great depths to try and understand even you know how to fly a plane and and all the different key concepts before just laying blame so he tried to understand all parts of this issue and then he came up with his own hypothesis as to what happened and his own ruling now, the good thing is, of course, this Mahan inquiry took Captain Vett's information into evidence. So that was part of, of what he considered. 
Now, like most accidents out there that happen, there's not just one or two little things that happen, but there's a few key errors that can contribute to the crash. You think about this, this was the 1970s, and computers were becoming new. So this had the airline, the 1970s basically kind of ushered in an airline of computerized flight plans. And the airline actually had moved away from just standard written flight plans to computerized flight plans to make things easier. Because, of course, the newer planes, these DC-10s, they had computers in them. So the computerized flight plans were meant to be safer, but actually in this case, it caused an issue. When the flight plan was actually first computerized, you know, months and months beforehand, one of the waypoints was keyed in wrong. Someone keyed in the number four instead of the number six, and the flights continued on with this errant mistake for 14 months with no issue. So over 14 months, there had to have been at least four, possibly up to about six flights with actually no issue. The error of someone keying in the number four instead of six was noticed on November 28th, 1979, the day before it was crashed. And the issue was corrected. But the thing is, the flight crew was never notified of the change. Remember, they had gone to a briefing two weeks beforehand. And when they got ready to go, no one notified them that, hey, this waypoint is no longer here. It's over here. So, and this is my own personal observation. It's not actually in the documentation, but I kind of took, it's a kind of my own takeaway from this. When you have a computer that is part of the process, you've got a mentality of trust the computer. Now, I actually work in electronic medical records. So whenever you get a prescription from your doctor that's electronic, whenever you're in the hospital and a doctor writes an order for physical therapy or for bed rest or for a diet, that's, that's what I actually do for a living. And I've actually seen, even with clinicians that have been, you know, clinicians for years and years and years, there is a trust that they put in the computer that... They, they take it at absolute gospel, but that's not always the case. So my personal takeaway from this is that possibly that the, the computer, of course, is always right. And that may have, in my own personal opinion, colored how the passengers, I mean, not the passengers, but how the, the crew responded. So there is the whole trust the computer thing that, you know, you let it computer override what's in your head sometimes. Because, of course, computers are supposed to be perfect. And the last thing, of course, was the pilots were new to the flight. Reading over the cockpit voice recorder, of course, like I said before, there were several spots that they spot out. There are several items on the landscape that they actually point out. And they're saying, oh, that's Ross Island. Oh, that's this. Oh, that's that. And if they were aware of the area, then they might have known that they were wrong. But because of their unawareness, their, you know, they actually were just completely wrong as to what the waypoints were. 
there's if you read the cockpit voice recorder there's just a few seconds before impact the one of the pilots or co-pilot actually says hey that looks like ross island off to the side but ross island wasn't off to the side it was right in front of them and of course there was mount erebus right in front ultimately captain vet's research and the second inquiry the mayhem inquiry found the real truth behind the crash and of course you know the real truth of course being that the biggest impact was the computerized flight plan changing and the crew never being notified it actually led justice uh, man to chide air new zealand who you know they had basically turned on their own flight crew man said that the air new zealand executives engaged in an orchestrated litany of lies and they covered up evidence and lied to investigators to hinder the investigation early on so that's what kind of happened in the chippendale report it took 18 months but the issue was finally finally put to rest with the real reason why air new zealand flight 901 crashed into mount erebus killing all on board like other big catastrophes with losses of life of course you know the people were buried the 213 people who had been picked up and identified and taken back they had been buried of course back in their home countries however there were 16 bodies that were actually never identified and there were still 28 bodies that were never recovered they actually had for a short time declared the this cave area on mount erebus as kind of a, a tomb and they were there was a special ceremony held you know months and months later for those 44 people to kind of put them to rest even though they weren't identified or their bodies weren't were absent of course after this accident air new zealand stopped their antarctica flights as did qantas now of course years later qantas is like hey let's let's do these antarctic flights again that those were kind of cool we made some money but air new zealand it is said and i don't know if this was a direct quote or or what but it was said air new zealand would not continue the flights for obvious reasons now if you are interested uh i believe it's antarcticaflights.com.au you can actually look uh, Qantas does these flights it runs once per year and it runs anywhere from $1,200 to $8,000 for a 10-hour sightseeing cruise it's on a Boeing 747 the accident of Air New Zealand flight 901 still touches Air New Zealand to this day in 2009 so of course this was 30 years after the crash the ceo apologized to those who didn't receive the help that they needed or the support that they needed after the crash they also unveiled a sculpture in honor of those who were lost in the accident because of the conditions of course like i said some bodies and some body parts were just never recovered and there was a wooden cross that was erected in late 1979 to 
uh, which stood there on Mount Erebus as a testament, as an, a memorial to these people who were killed. It was replaced in the 1980s by a metal one after, of course, the weather kind of eroded the wooden cross and disintegrated. So climate took its toll. So they, they replaced it with a metal one in the 1980s, and I believe it is still there. So that's it. The crash of Air New Zealand Flight 901. I want to thank you for listening. If you have questions, if you have comments, if you have concerns, please do not hesitate to get in touch with me. You can come over to catastrophecast.com and you can leave a comment. You can go especially to the what would you like to hear section. It's the uh, pinned item at the top of the screen and we're getting suggestions all the time. Please give me your suggestions because the listener suggestion ones like this one, you know, which is a shout out to my friend Ethan who is stationed in in Antarctica. Those are the most interesting ones to do. You can email me at podcast at catastrophecast.com or we're on Twitter at catastrophecast or you can go to Facebook dot com slash catastrophe cast and leave us a message over there if you like us please go into itunes leave us a rating that would be awesome we did just recently switch host providers so you may have seen something really wonky with the feed as of late but hopefully all that is all settled down now so don't hesitate to contact us and thanks for listening 